Blackwater, The Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, The Flying Tigers, The Swiss Guard, The White Company, The Knights Templar, The Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, Guns for Hire, Soldiers of Fortune, Private Military Companies, Private Security Contractors, Dirty Deeds, <laughs> Not So Dirt Cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. And like it or not, wars are good, very good for business. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. So choose the red pill, remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or as some call it, an austere or a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good and some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. That's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. All right, folks. So welcome back again to another episode of Aconis the Contractor's Life. A nice, cool, gray, cloudy day with on and off rain where I'm at. That's just par for the course. So, going to go back to the Jalalabad region, or as some folks uh, refer to it, the Nangarhar province in Afghanistan. Uh, going to try to put a wrap on it before long here with this one. There's probably still plenty to talk about and discuss. Uh, but like so much of it, uh, it's very difficult to remember all of it in precise order. So this will probably be the last episode uh, for that aspect of my time overseas. We'll move forward um, into other aspects of it, um, other locations, other projects, etc. And then eventually at some point, I don't know, next season, the season after that, whatever, at some point, 
it will all come to a more or less conclusion and then we'll start trying to stitch everything back together and have recounts and recollections um you know it might seem sporadic from the various locations various projects various times uh on the stories and and recollections that i have some funny some not so funny uh but all of it real okay actually happened and for those that are wondering because it's been asked yes the nangarhar province that part of uh jalalabad where i was at that is at least where some of the um, assets, I guess for back, <laughs> lack of a better term, um, originated for the Osama bin Laden raid in Pakistan. For anybody that remembers that, has heard about it or read about it. But yes, that, that was at least one of the originating points for, for the, some of, at least some of the assets. I'll just leave it at that. So while there... Uh, while there was a lot going on, <clears throat> not only um, on the perimeter, on the periphery, um, and other places outside where we were actually at, um, for the most part, uh, had to stay focused as best we could on our small slice of that great pie. So there were a lot, as you might imagine, almost an immeasurable amount of moving parts everywhere uh, but again ours was a very specific well-defined mission statement and ours so we had to stay focused on that uh, you know no time well there was time to look up and you know ponder and wonder you know about stuff that we saw flying around and other things that we saw uh, whether it was through NVGs or it was thermal or it was binoculars or just our plain old eyes uh, you'd be amazed at what you can take in in your senses and process once you've done it enough times. Um, eventually, you figure it all out. Maybe some people help you um, fine-tune those skills. <laughs> okay, But there, there were times, that said, where there was a lot of what you might call sensory overload. Uh, there was so much going on. Even if it didn't seem like a particularly busy day, there was a lot to pay attention to and a lot you had to really keep in mind, um, whether you work in the night shift or the day shift, or if you just happen to be in between those doing something else. Uh, but that was life in the Jalalabad region of Afghanistan there in Nangarhar province. And that province, that part of Afghanistan, was by no measure uh, the full sum <laughs> of what was going on in Afghanistan, uh, whether it was U.S. forces, allied forces, private security companies, um, anything else. I mean, they, you, you pick the province, uh, we probably had a footprint in probably every province there in Afghanistan, similar to what we had in Iraq. Um, and other nations, countries where the U.S. has been involved in some sort of military conflict. Um, there might be some hot spots and there's certain areas that are what we call build-up areas where it's pretty clear to anybody that's looking or paying attention that there's U.S. forces there. But as is often the case, there's lots of little things going on that if you don't know where to look, um, and you're not paying attention, you're probably going to overlook it or miss it totally. You wouldn't even know uh, that anybody was there. And quite frankly, that is the way a lot of them want to be. 
That's, that's how they operate. Uh, that's how they get in and out. And that's how they do and accomplish the things that they are tasked with doing. Now then, from a purely private security perspective, uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, in my time over there, regardless of where I was working or who I was working for or what the project was, one thing that came pretty clear to you fairly quickly is that as the years went on, and this became a lot more prevalent, we went from, and when I say we, you know, the U.S., that's not to say that other countries didn't also have something similar, but particularly with the U.S., there were agreements with those what we call host country nations where a certain percentage of the people that were paid to do whatever work they were doing on these camps or bases or fobs or airways, whatever, had to be their people, local people, local nationals had to be hired, employed to do the work. Now that lends itself necessarily to matters of secrecy. Okay, so you're, you know, things that might be there that are embedded or, you know, call it secret stuff. It, it, it was a constant daily process. Okay, because so many of these people weren't vetted and those that were vetted probably weren't as vetted as they should have been uh, there was a lot of political stuff going on that that you know a lot of times we didn't like what came our way we had you know we had to work with these people uh, we were required or the government agency in charge was required to hire a certain percentage of these local nationals and as so often is the case here in America, every other country, in the private sector, uh, and oftentimes, as we see now in, in the government sector as well, oftentimes people are hired not solely or necessarily um, or pri even primarily because of the credentials and the qualifications and because they've been vetted, but because they know somebody. They're the friend or the brother or the in-law, the neighbor, whatever, of somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, and you know how that goes. So we saw a lot of that. As the years went on, we saw even more of that. Now, that's not to say that there weren't locations, um, particularly certain locations, where it still occurred, but it was much tighter. It was the regulatory system, the vetting system was much more stringent, much more strict. Um, but there was a lot of tomfoolery <laughs> that went on. Um, for and, and a lot of that that I saw when it just kind of like hit me square on was as I moved on to other projects in the Bagram area and then in Kabul proper and then outside the Kabul area, but still within the Kabul uh, province. Not to say that I didn't experience some of it there in Nangarhar. We did. Um, I think I talked earlier about uh, there were many, 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 many assaults on that area. <clears throat> um, so, uh, and, and we know that some of those people, even on that small parcel of land that we occupied, uh, we had our share of uh, interlopers, people that we knew were passing on information, and we did our best to quash it. But ultimately, it was up to the client and, uh, you know, the people that they uh, mixed with. And you discovered at some point that a lot of it came down to intelligence or counterintelligence 
processes and methods. Um, and we sometimes would talk about that, not loudly, but you know, amongst ourselves, that the probably, probably the reason that person is still here was just for that reason. That there was an intelligence slash counterintelligence process or method going on to collect intelligence or to send counterintelligence. Um, and if you understand the difference between intelligence and counterintelligence, then you would also understand uh, the counterintelligence aspect to allowing someone to seemingly continue to operate unfettered in that environment. But be that as it may, here nor there, our task, our purpose, our reason for being there was the security element. So <laughs> I guess the old saying is, uh, don't worry about it. This is our job. This is what we do. So as long as we're doing our job as best we can and we're doing a good job at it, and we were, uh, the rest is really up to somebody else. Okay, Just like their job is intelligence or assaulting or, or um, going in and doing what they need to do. Uh, in the dark of night or in broad daylight, whatever it may be, on the, in the air or on land or some other method, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have anything to do with that. Now, we may or may not have something to say about it, <laughs> especially uh, you know, either before or after, but that, that wasn't our task. That wasn't our purpose. That's not what we were there for. So they had their job. We had our job. So our job was security maintaining the security posture on that facility, um, controlling access, um, and catching people when we could, and then articulating it, whether we had notes or otherwise. But, uh, and, and, and trust me, um, there were eyes and ears everywhere, literally and figuratively, okay? Whether it was electronic eyes and ears, some form of, or literal eyes and ears. Um, somebody's always watching. Somebody's always listening, um, so very little really escaped the purview of anybody and everybody that needed or should know about what's going on. It was simply, well, I say simply, but it was oftentimes came down to how well could we articulate and sometimes passionately <laughs> articulate our point that we're trying to get across as to why this is a viable security concern and it should be addressed appropriately. So that was kind of a fairly common theme. Um, especially if you were in a supervisory management position, but sometimes even if you were just another boot on the ground uh, because uh, you, not everybody is as good as other people at articulating um, without, throwing a, without lacing it with a lot of uh, rough verbiage that doesn't need to be used that, that kind of loses the point, um, especially when you're talking to somebody a little bit further up the totem pole. So with that in mind, the particular client that we had, and I can't really go into detail, I can't really spell it out who it was, but again, it, it was a task force, and at this point, this particular location, a joint task force, which meant that there were multiple entities involved um, with the uniform services and government agencies, and, uh, you know, our ROE, which, of course, uh, at that point had had either changed or was changing into what we then called the rules for the use of force. So we went from rules of engagement to rules for the use of force. Ours were fairly specific, but we basically had, I wouldn't call it carte blanche or an open book, but we knew the rules and we knew the, 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 the lines in the sand, if you will, around where we were. And up to that point, 
if those points, if those thresholds were crossed, if they were broken, if they were invaded or breached, um, we had broad powers, if you will, to do our job to prevent that from happening. So, I mean, that was really nice. It wasn't the only time I had a project like that. Um, but you would be amazed at, uh, again, it just depended on where you were and who the governing agencies were and who was in charge. Um, but there were places where uh, it was, that was articulated, but realistically it was, you know, don't shoot, you know, call it in and let somebody else handle it. Um, but in that particular place, along with some other places, uh, we did have those those broad intervening um, powers, if you will, if the need should present itself. And there were actually a number of occasions where, where we, we had to or almost had to uh, do just that. And we were poised every time to do it. Now, was everybody there somebody that should have been there? No, <laughs> of course not. Um, I can't think of a project that I was a part of where that wasn't the case. Why and how that continued to happen and be a thing, I don't know. But it's probably much like what guys I know who are still in certain, on certain contracts overseas still complain about. It seems like every year the standards get a little, they go down more. Every year, the standards get less and less, lowered and lowered. The qualifications and the credentials are almost, what qualifications? What credentials? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically the way it's been explained to me as the years have continued to go on since I got out. Now, where it's at at this point, who knows for sure? You'd have to be there, or you'd have to take it on the word of the guys and gals that are still there. You either believe them, or you don't. But truth is truth. <laughs> that said, folks, I'm going to let that be a wrap for this episode. And then I want to say thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day, your afternoon, or your evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas, as well as occasionally some of my experiences as a private security contractor here in the States. I want to say thank you to my wife, for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude. Thank you to my family, my friends, and all the people, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by being aware and staying frosty. And until next time, Keep it real. Oconus the Contractor's Life extends a special thank you to music composer Kava Cohen and to Colin Perry of Ninja Tracks for allowing Oconus the Contractor's Life the use of Kava's song, Heavy Clutch, from the music soundtrack to the game Forza Motorsport 7. And also a big thank you to Andres Rodriguez, who can be found at the Fiverr website for his excellent original music scores. <laughs>